Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, and welcome to It's a Fandom Thing. I'm your host, Erin Marlowe, and each week I'm joined by a panel of guests to discuss all things fandom, and pop culture, primarily from a female perspective. You'll find everything from fanfic, to cosplay, to Schitt's Creek, to Supernatural, and everything in between. So put on your favorite piece of fandom merch, set aside that fanfic that you're writing about your OTP, and sit back and enjoy this week's episode. Hello, and welcome to this special episode of It's a Fandom Thing. Today, I am very honored to be sitting down virtually to speak with author Jody Milliman. Jody is an award-winning thriller writer, and her latest novel, Hooker Avenue, which is the second in the Queen City crime series, has just been released. It is an exciting novel, which sees the return of attorney Jesse Martin in upstate New York's Hudson Valley. Jesse is on her way home during a pop-up thunderstorm when she spots a woman drowning in a storm drain. She pulls over to save the woman, only to discover that no good deed goes unpunished. Responding to the scene is Jesse's former best friend, Detective Ebony Jones. Ebony and her partner are investigating a string of disappearances of sex workers, and the assault matches the other crimes with one difference, the victim is still alive. Jody has won multiple awards for her novel, The Midnight Call, and is the best-selling author of Seats, New York Theater Guidebook, She's an attorney, a reviewer for brooktrib.com, the host producer of Backstage with the Bardavon podcast, and creator of the Writer's Law School. Milliman lives with her family in the uh, Hudson Valley, where she is at work on the next installment of her Queen City Crime series. So thank you so much for joining me, Jody. I'm very excited to talk to you about this. I know that a lot of our listeners are true crime fans. We did an episode on true crime. That's one of our most popular ones um, about podcasts and stuff. And I know people love thrillers that listen to this and uh, love novels that are about serial killers as well and stories, me being one of them. So I'm very excited to sit down and talk to you. So thank you so much for joining us today. It's nice to be here, Erin. So I know Hooker Avenue was inspired by the real life murders in Poughkeepsie. So can you tell us a little bit more about these crimes and what it was about it that inspired you to write this? Well, a, a couple of things inspired me. Um, first was my personal connection to the crime. And that was um, in 1995, a business partner and I purchased a building in Poughkeepsie for our law offices. I'm an attorney. And we were having a problem because on our steps, we had a congregation of, of prostitutes who were hanging out on the steps. So we were having a problem. We contacted the police. We asked them to please help us. They didn't. But gradually over time, over a period, I would say, of two or three years, the girls disappeared. And we you know, assumed that the police were involved. Well, it turns out we found out in 1998 
that there was a gentleman who was coming by and soliciting these women from outside of our office, taking them back to his house and murdering them. And the whole thing broke wide open when one of the gals escaped. She uh, turned up at a Sunoco station on Main Street. The owner of the of the gas station called the police and and you know reported that there's a badly beaten woman who just stumbled into the store. The next thing you know, the whole thing broke out, and it was kind of it was hidden. From the whole situation was hidden from the people who live in the Hudson Valley because it turns out that over the period from 1995 to 1998, these women were disappearing, and there were a period there were eight women who actually disappeared. Their families were contacting the police, begging them to to look for them and to help them find them, and nothing was done. They they all turned into cold cases until this woman luckily escaped from this this killer. It, it also turns out that there was starting to become more political pressure on the police to do something and find out something. And what they were doing was they set up a task force to try to find these women. But it turns out the task force was started within three weeks of this woman who escaped. Mm-hmm. So the task force really didn't have any kind of um, impact on finding this killer. Um, And the whole thing was just, um, it was a travesty of justice. And I felt that I wanted to bring attention to the fact that there are women who were underserved. There were women who, if they had been the wives of bankers or the wives of lawyers, that they had been social media um, stars, people would have looked for them. There would have been more done to help find these women. And that's really what motivated, motivated me to go ahead and turn this terrible story into a novel really of redemption and reemergence and to bring memory to these women. Yeah. Which is, which is so important because I do think that, I mean, that happens a lot, especially anyone that's in a sex worker or in that Mm -hmm. trade are treated like less than, and like they're not human beings anymore. And so, yeah, I think it's very important. So I think that's wonderful that you did. And it's amazing uh, just kind of like, the confluence of events of that happening right outside of where you were working, that must just be like to be that close to that must have been just really, I I don't know if earth shattering is the right word for it, but just kind of horrifying to some degree. And the gentleman's name was Kendall Francois. And after once this woman escaped, I think her name was Christina Scala. Once, once she escaped and this whole story broke open, then it turns out that, they went to his house and it turns out that he lives literally five blocks from where my own home is. Oh my gosh. And at the time, my children were very small. And I remember I was with my father in the car. We were coming home from the market or something with my kids and all of the streets in our neighborhood were, were, you know, they had, um, uh, we couldn't get in, you know, they, they had everything blocked off. And my children, I mean, and you'd look up in the sky and they had helicopters circling over our neighborhood. And my children were asking me what was going on. And I had to explain to them that there was a dangerous man that lived in our neighborhood. I mean, it was very difficult to explain to my children. And to this day, I mean, my kids are in their 30s now. We often talk about it. We say, you know, I ask them, do you remember this? And they clearly remember that day in their lives. Yeah. And then and then what I decided to do, since I'm an attorney, I was allowed to go to some of the hearings in the Francois case. And the one that struck me the most was the one where 
um, he was just about to be sentenced because they found they um, they determined that he was guilty of, you know, first degree murder, eight counts. And so in, before his sentencing, the families of all of the victims were able to come and appear and plead to the judge and say, look, this I've lost my loved one. I've lost my mother, my aunt, my sister, my cousin. And Francois was in the courtroom. And this guy literally, I mean, he's like, was 300, 350 pounds. He was literally a giant. And all of these women were very, very petite women. So you could see how... Physically, they had no chance against this guy. But it was heartbreaking to hear their stories, really heartbreaking. And so that was something I, in the back of my mind was like, there's a story here, there's a story here, there's a story here. And again, like I said, that was about, about 2000 when finally the whole court, uh, the criminal matter proceeded to, to court. So as you can see, what is it, 2022? It took me a while mm -hmm. to really sit down and write this story. Yeah, when I think that that's probably a lot of research, even if you knew some of it, and yes. a lot of to process as well. So, yeah, yeah. And then, what is the significance of the title then of the title Hooker Avenue? Well, Hooker Avenue is a street in the city of Poughkeepsie, and the true story is that um, in the late 1800s, around right after the time of the Civil War, there was a man named John Hooker, and he was very well known in our area. And he was um, a real estate magnate, and he bought up a lot of property along um, along this area. And so eventually he became a judge, and he was in, held in high esteem. And so the street was named after him, John Hooker. However, mm -hmm. historically, there is a famous Hooker, and his name is Joseph Hooker. And that's how the women, that's how Hookers got their name. He, uh, Joseph Hooker was a partying wild guy general in the Civil War. And he was so renowned for his parties that that they would travel, the women would travel with his, uh, with his band and with his army battalion all over the Civil War. They would follow him. It was like a traveling, a traveling party. And so they used to call these women Hooker's Brigade or Hooker's. Oh, wow. So that's how women of, you know, sex workers got their nickname, women of ill repute. Wow, I didn't know that. That's amazing. Yeah. Yes, you look it up. It's really kind of interesting. So what I did was I kind of did a play on that. Instead of, instead of our guy being John Hooker, I, I named it after uh, Joseph Hooker, the real, uh, the real nickname person. <laughs> How, yeah, I did not know. That's that's amazing. That's amazing. And I'm guessing most people don't know that. So no, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a quirky thing. I mean, how do, mm -hmm. it's it's kind of interesting sometimes to find out the origin of of names. Yeah, yeah, especially when because it is a name that I think when you first hear it because we have a Hooker Avenue here too. Mm -hmm. But I think sometimes when you hear it, it's kind of like jarring for some reason to people. It kind of sometimes can feel a little bit like harsh because yeah. of the undertones of the word and what it's come to mean now. So yeah, yeah, that's, that's, I'm going to have to look more into that too. That's really interesting. When they hear the name Hooker Avenue. And I thought it was appropriate because these women were all picked up, mm -hmm. you know, at, um, at one particular spot. Well, in the book, it's, it's a park. And so the cops nicknamed that park Hooker Avenue. And it's also, I think, you know, going to that as far as like how people snicker at that, I think that also can play into how people perceive sex workers and how right. people can look down at them too. So it kind of, I think, can quest can make you kind of maybe rethink your preconceptions and your judgments in a way too. So 
yeah, yeah. I think it's a great title. Honestly, <laughs> it's a great title. I had the title before I had the book. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, I've heard from several writers who do that. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so this is part of a series, as I said, it's part of the Queen City crime series. So are there challenges that present themselves when you're writing a series of novels instead of just a standalone one? There are. And a lot of it is consistency of the characters. Because, you know, you if you create a character in book A as being, you know, someone who is sensitive and has had trauma in their lives, you have to make sure that those characteristics carry over to the next mm -hmm. book. So what I tried to do in Hooker Avenue was to bring in new characters. And, and build out a community so that we do have our core characters. We have Jesse Martin, who's my key attorney. I have her, her boyfriend, Paramore, um, Hal Samuels, who's the district attorney. And what I've done is I've changed their lives. We see them develop. And that's what I think a real challenge is when you have a crime series or any kind of series, you have to make your characters grow as well as incorporating who they are, but they have to grow and they have to have new um, adventures in order to keep your readers intrigued. Yeah, because if they say stagnant, you're going to get really bored. You're like, okay, yeah. this isn't realistic, especially with all this stuff going on right. with these characters and to these characters, uh, especially, I think, Jesse. I, I mean, <laughs> she's just kind of in a tortured place when it begins. Yes, yes. And that kind of continues. <laughs> I feel so bad for her throughout the whole. She's someone that I'm like, I just want to give her a hug and say, just, just take a nice long hot bath, get a massage, <laughs> take care of you for a few minutes. <laughs> yeah, she has a lot of stuff that's going on. She's really going oh, through yeah. some changes. <laughs> <laughs> a lot, a lot, and a lot left over from from the other stuff that she's dealt with with the previous novel. So, exactly. yeah. So your novel and novels really deal with murder and assault and, and there's sexual assault as well. I know these are dark topics. Um, I've written like horror short screenplays and I know when writing that it can be kind of, sometimes it can mess with your mind and you feel like you're in too much of a dark place. So do you ever struggle with that? Is there ever a time where it's like, oh, this is too heavy. I don't know if I can do this right now. Well, I, I'm going to say no, and I can tell you why, because for years, for 20, 25 years, I practiced law as a matrimonial attorney. So I did a lot of divorces, and I did a lot of custody. <laughs> um, I did some minor criminal work, but I did a lot of, you know, I'm used to dealing with people in very dark places. Mm -hmm. And I think, especially being an attorney, you learn to compartmentalize your life. You you don't let it, you know, you you try not to let it seep into your personal life. And that's something I was able to carry over or I do carry over in my writing. You know, I do feel it when I'm writing it, but then I'm able to step back. So I would have to say I've never been in such a dark place where I said, look, I can't write this mm -hmm. because, you know, as I said, I'm able to compartmentalize. Yeah. And I would imagine, I mean, especially dealing with a lot of divorces, even though people yes. may not think that's as dark as a crime thing. I mean, I'm sure you saw yeah. like darker, horrible. Yeah, darker. I would think so. Because yeah. yeah, people can be so cruel to people that they supposedly love. So I'm sure that was, yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of the key of my books that, that, you know, it's the ones that you love the most that can do the most hurt and damage to you. And whether it's a matrimonial yeah. situation, whether it's a crime, whether it's, I mean, any kind of situation you could think of, it's the people that you trust the most. And it's the betrayal 
that really can can harm you the most. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you have some of that, of course, in this novel too, with a lot of going on with 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 Hal and Jesse trying to leave different relationships and their former partners, like like Kyle and with Jesse and all that that kind of stuff. So yeah, yeah. Well, um, like we mentioned, this does deal a lot with um, prostitutes and the character of Lizzie Sexton, who is the character that is discovered um, in unconscious in a ditch, uh, badly beaten. And I want to know, because you're writing a lot about sex workers in here and sex workers who have been murdered, and of course, from your own personal experience of having um, your law office right there and living near the killer as well, uh, did this give you a different perspective or understanding about sex workers? It did. And what what I did, interestingly, was I, in order to be an attorney, Um, Every year you have to take uh, continuing legal education credits and they were having a program about sex workers and program about um, really legalization of the prostitution laws in New York. So that was something I was able to, from a legal perspective, immerse myself in. And through that program, I, I was able to understand that, you know, a lot of this are are life choices which are beyond the control of these women. You know, a lot of them are at, I'm not, I'm not casting, I'm not taking any stereotypes, but a lot of women who fall into this type of work, it's, you know, it's because of drug addiction. It's because they're estranged from their families. Um, you know, there are so many reasons. I mean, there are lifestyle choices, but there's also uh, events which these women have no control over. And there's a big movement now, especially in New York, to decriminalize prostitution. That being because right now it's the women who are who are ending up in jail because they're com- allegedly committing a crime of prostitution, and the, the people, the Johns, are not are not really being followed up. They're the ones who are not, you know, finding the penalties and finding themselves in jail. There's a real dichotomy in someone who's committing the crime is is having is having sex or offering sex, which is where is the crime in that situation? And there really is a big push now to decriminalize it. And what's also interesting is, especially if you look at New York, it's like fortune telling. And I mean, there are a lot of crazy um, uh, laws that have similar penalties. And then there's prostitution. So it just seems to me that it's that we should be doing more to help women escape being sex workers. We should decriminalize prostitution, first of all, and we should offer support services and education for women to help them change their lives. That's the key. Yeah, I'm so glad you said decriminalization because we do have a frequent panelist who she works a lot to help with decriminalization. And that's her big thing is there's such a difference between legalization and decriminalization. And I don't think people realize that. So, and she's working here hard. She just recently spoke, I believe at a, at a committee uh, about that. So it's, yeah. So that's, that's very, very, very important because it's true. It's, they're treated so horribly. And if you legalize it, that also leads to other issues uh, down the line. So, yeah. If it's, if, if it's decriminalized, then they have the opportunity to get jobs and they have the opportunity. Mm -hmm. I mean, basically it cleans off their, um, it expunges their record. So, you know, it's as if these, so that's not going to impact their credit. I mean, people don't realize that, that, you know, when you commit a crime, it impacts your ability to get an apartment because it affects your credit rating. I mean, there's so many intricacies in 
as you say, legalization versus decriminalization, it really, they should just really get a clean sweep. It's just really not fair that they're being punished when the Johns aren't. Exactly. 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 Agree. So, so much with that. Yes. So that's another reason I really appreciate this novel as well. And you write that character, Lizzie, she's more than just like a stereotype. Um, she she is st- struggling with addiction, but it's deeper than that. And she's also struggling with wanting to be a mom and all these all these things and wanting to be believed, I think, is the big right. thing that she's also struggling with. And so you write a lot of very strong women in this novel. Um, you have the two main women are two very complex women who are not just two dimensional with with Jesse and with Detective Ebony Jones. And too often female characters, especially I think also in this genre, sometimes mm-hmm. can be just two dimensional or reserved as the love interest or just the one to save by the man kind of thing. So how important was it for you? I'm sure it was really important, especially as a woman, right. um, for you to ensure that the female characters in your novel are not are really complex and not just two dimensional. First of all, that was one of the most important things. I mean, these are really women's stories. They're about women, uh, hopefully real life women, women that that people can relate to who have struggles. And even though I'm writing crime fiction, I want to make sure that people believe that these characters have real lives outside of this crime. Because when a crime occurs, I mean, you're still dealing with your children, you're still dealing with your relationships, you're dealing with your parents, you're dealing with all of these other issues as a human being, in addition to having this pall of a crime going on, you know, especially Ebony, because Ebony is struggling with with a physical disability, she's been shot. So not only is she she dealing with trying to uh, make her way as a biracial cop, being one of the few women on the force, having constant struggles, um, professional struggles with her best friend, with her partner, she's in physical pain. So she's got to try to overcome that as well. And I wanted to create a character that um, really has to overcome those. Jessie's struggles are more emotional. She's had, she had a very close relationship in the past book with Terrence Butterfield, who was her mentor. And he, he has gone from being her mentor to being her greatest torturer. In this book, he's stalking her and he's betrayed her. She was he was someone she told her secrets to. And now she's dealing with the emotional pain uh, and also thinking, wait a second, have I misread everyone in my life? Here is one of my closest friends. How how blind am I? I was an attorney. I was supposed to be able to read people and I couldn't read one of the people that was closest to me. And then we have Lissy. Lissy, as you said, is struggling to be a mom. She's struggling with addiction issues. And as you say, she's struggling to be believed. Her credibility is the biggest thing. And so you're looking, you're looking at a crime really from three different perspectives, cop, victim, and someone who is seeking redemption, an attorney who's seeking redemption. And that was really important to me to get those three point of views across to the readers. Yeah, and it's fascinating, and I, I really appreciated that. And I, I do think when you know more about characters in novels like this, and it's not just just constant like one thrill after another, it makes when those moments happen, um, it raises the stakes because then you care more about these characters and you care more about their lives and where they're coming from. And it can help you put yourself into their shoes and one chapter you might relate more 
to one of the characters than the other one or that kind of it's so yeah so it's very very interesting so i really really appreciated that a lot so hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the priceline app today your savings are waiting Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. And the relationship between Jesse and Ebony is very tenuous. They were best friends, but in this novel, when they first see each other again, after uh, Jesse has discovered Lizzie and they first see each other, Ebony is very cold to Jesse. Uh, and their relationship is very strained. And you can see that Ebony, uh, to me, it kind of came at, they were coming at it from different angles. Like I think Jesse kind of was trying to maybe be still in that friendship mode. And Ebony's like got this wall up and like, nope, not letting you in. So even though they're at odds, do you think maybe there's a part of them, both of them, even though they're coming at this from different angles, that is hoping that maybe if they work on this case together, somehow it can bring their friendship back? Well, Ebony, as you said, Ebony and Jesse have a very complicated relationship. You have two two uh, characters who started out as childhood friends. I mean, mm-hmm. these two have been through thick and thin together, and they had a falling out. It started out probably around college when Jesse and Ebony decided they were going to go to college together. I kind of hinted at this. They decided they were going to co- go to college together, but at the last minute, Jesse is offered a full scholarship. And so instead of going to Marist College here in Poughkeepsie, she takes off and goes to Syracuse University. And that was the beginning of the erosion of their relationship. That's when their 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 uh, paths separated. I mean, they were really like sisters. And I'm there. I think each one of them hopes that they will be able to resurrect that relationship with one another. But at this point, they're on two different sides of the law. Ebony is a cop. She's got a job to do. It's her job to go ahead and catch the bad guy. Well, Jesse, her job, she's an attorney. She's she's learning to become a criminal defense attorney. So it's her job to defend the bad guy. So immediately you find these two women who are on the opposite sides of the fence butting heads. Now, in this particular case, they have to work together. They have to overcome that that um, dissension between them to catch a serial killer. I mean, first they think it's a serial rapist, which is terrible enough. But then when the two of them realize that that they're dealing with a serial killer, they really have to put their personal differences aside in order to do what's best for society. However, from Jesse's perspective, she's she's always got an umbrella of ethical concerns. As an attorney, can she... Can she reveal her sources and help Ebony, or can she, is she is she bound by law to keep her client her client secret? In other words, can she reveal where um, Lissy is without violating her professional responsibilities to her client? So you see, the two of them have such different um, obligations. Ebony's is to society, and Jesse's is to her client. 
And so that's a struggle. And I think it's a struggle that they're always going to have. And I think that they do want to be friends, but they're going constantly going to have to struggle with that, with that tension between them. Yeah. Yeah. And you, and you see that tension and that longing in so many scenes, I don't really want to give away a lot of them, but it's because <laughs> it's more towards the end after, after, you know, certain things have been revealed, but uh, that, that are just so interesting to watch and to see it since, since the novel switches perspectives. So when you're seeing it from Jesse's and we're seeing it from Ebony's, because there is, even though Ebony's got that wall up, there is still that, she still has that love for her friend and she still has that just overwhelming worry about her friend, especially towards, towards the end of the novel, you really, really see that, but there's also that hurt and pain there. So yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. I think it, it adds a level of, uh, I don't want to say urgency, but a level of like care and concern in the novel too, and a connection to them. So, yeah. So when you're writing criminal fiction, uh, what are the essential elements, do you think, to make sure that you are keeping the reader on their toes or always kind of guessing? You know, that's a really good question. And there are, there are so many answers that I could give to that. But I think the first thing is that you have to have a crime, you know, and in order to have a crime, you have to have, you know, you have to have suspects. You have to have means, you have to have a motive, you have to have, you know, an actual act, a, a, a bad act, basically. Mm -hmm. So I think what you have to do is you have to have engaging characters. You have to have an engaging crime. You have to have twists and turns along the way. You have to have, um, you know, I, and in my books, I like to have some kind of societal issue that's being examined that kind of overrides and overarches what the crime is. So, I mean, there are a lot of things that really go into it, but it's, it's, a, that's a really, really good question when, and I've been thinking about that a lot, honestly. <laughs> and and it's, yeah. um, there are just so many aspects. I mean, you have to have a really good plot. I mean, from a, I can think about it from a lawyer's perspective and I can think about it from a writer's perspective, good plot, good characters, good pacing, you know, great dialogue. I mean, those are the basics that you need, but you, mm -hmm. but, but you need heart. I think you really need heart. And I also think that you have to keep in mind when you're writing crime fiction, that there's the act of, let's say murder, but it's a ripple effect that, that, that extends out from that seed of the murder. So of course, murder is a shame, murder is a tragedy, but it's really its impact on the people in the community and whether it's a loved one, whether it's the, um, the detective who's, who's trying to solve the crime, whether it's the, the judge who's going to hear the crime, whether it's the district attorney that's going to prosecute the crime, each one of those aspects, it's a ripple effect of the murder. It's an impact upon all of the aspects of the crime. Do you understand yeah, what I'm like saying? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, it does. It ripples out and affects different different areas. And you have to, especially when you're when you're writing all of those areas in one novel. <laughs> and right. you have to sort of show all of those. Yeah, yeah. And I would I would assume also writing um, the, the villain and writing the person who was doing this crime, the criminal. I, I mean, I think you would, I mean, I don't know. Is, is there, are there any differences there when you're plotting out how you're going to write the actual person who was doing this stuff? Because you have a couple of people in here who are 
<laughs> very scary, very creepy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you've got someone stalking Jesse too over the phone, and that's just ooh, those those were yeah, those were intense to read. I have to say, in a good way. But yeah, so I, is that different though? Writing that that side of it a little. It bit? is, and you know, one of the things that I don't think I could do as a writer is put myself into the head of a killer. That's why I, I'm not going to say never, but I always want to be able to write that villain from, from a third person point of view so that it's the people who are affected by the crime that are looking in at him or her, mm -hmm. for example. So for example, in this case, we, we never get really inside the head of the killer. The only way we learn about him, um, about his internal motivation, is from his dialogue. But we also learn it from the perspective of Jesse having had a brush with him, uh, from Lissy having had a serious brush with him, from Ebony trying to capture him. So you're getting this 360 degree view of the crime and of this character without ever having to be in the character's head. Because honestly, I don't, you know, that's one thing I don't think I could ever do. That would lead me to a very dark place. <laughs> yeah, and, and also with that, you know, too often we want to, I think in this world, we want to glamorize the murderer right. and not look at the victims. And so I think when, when you're doing it this way, it, it, to me, they're just awful human beings who have done mm -hmm. horrible, horrible things. And not once are you like, oh, let's examine what happened to this person and the right. poor them. And so that that I really did appreciate because I think a lot of times what happens is the opposite. And so everything's so focused on the killer and their what their motivations are and who they are and examining their past that the victim's voices get lost in everything. And so I, th I think that's another reason that, that works so well that you are not, you're not going to be sitting there going, oh, poor him though. This happened to him. Right. <laughs> it's more, it was poor victims. Nobody cares about the victims. What about right. the victims? So yeah. Yeah. So I know you work in the legal field, as you've mentioned quite a few times. So I'm sure that background helps a lot with this. I know you've never worked in, really in criminal law, but how did that, help you with writing this, especially writing a character that works in law, several characters? Well, it, it a couple of things. It helped. Let's talk about how it helped me as a writer. As a writer, it helped me with storytelling because when I was, when I was practicing law uh, full time, I found that um, my job was to communicate my client's story to a judge, to a jury, to my adversary. So it was my job to be a storyteller, an advocate on behalf of my client. So I was able to take those skills that I learned as an attorney and apply it to becoming a crime writer. So, but it also helped me with vocabulary. It helped me with pacing, helped me with researching, helped me with um, just being able to, as I said, communicate a story to, uh, to an audience. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, as, a, as an attorney, it really helped me. Um, I mean, in doing when you write a book like this, you have to be able to do research. So I was able to pick up the phone and call people that I knew who had their fingers, um, first of all, involved in this case, um, involved with EMS, 
you know, I'd never been in the back of an ambulance. So I was able to know who to call to find out how people uh, would be treated if they were found in a ditch by the EMS. Um, I have a good friend who's a police sergeant. If I need police procedure, I knew that I could call him. So, you know, as an attorney, I was I was taught to research uh, before I presented a case. And so I was able to do that, use that skill. And, you know, I also, I guess the, the basic thing is I believe in writing what you know. I mean, I couldn't write science fiction. I mean, I would have a real trouble writing fantasy. I mean, as an attorney, I'm very um, reality bound. And I'm able, you know, and so I felt like I could write what I know. Now, what is the first thing that I know? I know how to be a female attorney. I know what the strains are. You know, I know what it's like to try to balance a family with your job. I know what it's like to be, when I first started practicing law, I was one of the few women in Dutchess County that was practicing law. There were six of us, six women practicing law. So I know what it's like to struggle to, to be heard. You know, I know what it's like for judges to have certain prejudices against you because you're a woman. You know, I mean, there was a lot of hashtag me too going on when I first started out as as a female attorney. So I was able to take all those things and be able to channel them into all of my characters, not just Jesse, but into Lissy, Ebony and to, um, you know, to Jesse as well. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well. Yeah, I'm just really, really enjoying talking to you. I just want to say, it's just kind of an aside. No, I'm learning so much. It's so interesting. It's so, so interesting. It speaks to when I was a little kid, I really wanted to be an attorney. And the reason I wanted to be a lawyer is I, I used to act a lot. So to me, I just was always watching the ones where they do the big speeches. And, they, <laughs> and I know not because I've known a lot of attorneys because <laughs> my mom worked in, in as a paralegal. So I knew a lot of attorneys. So I know it's not like that. But in my mind, it was like, I get up there and do the big speech. <laughs> but it is theater. I do have to tell you. I mean, when I would prepare for a trial, I would prepare as if I was presenting a play because Part of it is having another personality. Part of it is being able, as I said, to pitch to a um, to a jury, to pitch to a judge, to make it believable. I mean, so if I went in being, you know, kind of quiet and just kind of, nobody was going to believe me. So I had to add flair, you know. So it was it was to me, it was like becoming part of a theater. You're absolutely right. I mean, the pace, the pace of a, of a trial, like is, you know, is, is slower than molasses, you know, <laughs> I, I tried to make it fun. I tried to make it entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> I tried to win. That's what I tried to do. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's what, that's what you're setting out. That's what your goal is to do. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify, whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. So speaking of that, just just to kind of segue here, because I talked about that you have a podcast yeah, um, backstage with the Bardavan. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Bardavan Theater, yeah. Bardavan, okay, thank you. Um, which is about the Bardavan 1869 Opera House in Poughkeepsie. So I want to know, since we were talking a little bit about theater there, mm -hmm. so what was it that made you want to dive into this and do this podcast? Well, it started out 
really is a history project because we have the Bardavan Theater. It's called the 1869 Opera House. It's the longest operating um, venue in the United States. And if you go back to 1869, it was the Barrymores, Mark Twain, um, Frank Sinatra, Duke Ellington, um, you know, Aretha Franklin, they've all performed at this theater. So I had the idea of why not reach out to people who are who have hit the boards there? Why not talk to people that remember what the Bardavan, you know, who's been at the Bardavan? And let's get a podcast together. We have, I think, um, at this point, 21 episodes. We're in our third season. And we've had some really interesting people. We've had Mer- the actress and activist uh, Mary Stuart Masterson. We, um, we've had Philippe Petit who is the guy that walked the wire between the World Trade Center back in the 70s. I mean, mind-blowing that we were able to talk to him. Um, Dar Williams, who's a great uh, American folk singer. Um, Joe Joe Lewis Walker, who is an unbelievable blues singer who lives in the Poughkeepsie. He lives a couple blocks from me. Danny Lewis, who's who's the keyboardist for a government mule. We've had some incredible guests who have all had some relation to the Bardavon Theater. And I mean, you walk in there, the, the theater's got maybe less than a thousand seats. So every seat in the house is a primo seat. I mean, I saw Aretha Franklin there. She was our gala guest. I wasn't able to interview her. Uh, Tom Jones, John Legend. I mean, we've had them all. And I didn't want to let that history slip by. Uh, That's, oh my gosh, that must just be so incredible to be able to, um, you know, sit. And I've, I've listened to one episode. I do, I do recommend, especially, I know we have a lot of people that have been on our panels and a lot of people that listen that love music, love theater, love the history of that as well. Uh, So that just must be just amazing and just so fascinating to be able to sit down and talk to these people who have performed there and learn the history of a space, especially an intimate venue. That's it is. a lot more intimate. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, because of COVID, we haven't been able to sit down. Usually we sit down on the stage yeah. or we sit down um, out in the foyer and we do our interviews face to face. We haven't been able to do that, you know, in two years. And also a lot of acts haven't been touring. So it's been really hard to get guests who, you know, they're, they're, everybody's, you know, panic stricken, you know, but we're starting to get back into it. One of the guests I'm really excited. I'm hoping we're going to get Estelle Parsons, the Oscar winner, because mm-hmm. she has performed and has a, a great history with the Bardavon and we're trying to get her into our schedule. Um, Audrey McDonald is the guest for our gala coming up in May and she's on our maybe, maybe list. I mean, just really wonderful people who are, and you know, there was one guy, Jose, I forget Jose's last name. He's a guy who's an astrophysicist who takes pictures of the Aurora Borealis and the stars. And they took and they made a film and played it along with pieces with the Philharmonic. I mean, how often do you get in your lifetime, be able to sit down and talk to an astrophysicist slash photographer? I mean, it's just those mind blowing. It was a lot of fun. I I bet. Well, fingers crossed that you get all the interviews yeah. that you really want to. That's uh, that's that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And I'm wondering, just I'm just curious if 
any of that ever, I know it's kind of a different thing, but if that ever inspires you at all with writing or creative or creatively, when you're talking to these people, does that inspire you at all too? Or Well, you know, it's, it, it inspi- what inspires me is the Bardavan. And I really want to dig into the history a little bit more to see whether there were any crimes that were ever yes. committed there, because it would make a great scene for a murder. You know, who wouldn't want to read read a story about, you know, a murder that takes place backstage, at, you know, at, at an actual theater? Um, and, you know, what I try to do with my with my own um, writing is that even though I see externally, there are so many wonderful stories that could be told. I look to the Hudson Valley. I want to keep my stories based upon true crimes here in the Hudson Valley. And oddly enough, Erin, I mean, there are dozens of them. I mean, there's, there, there, I cannot believe some of the wild uh, crimes that have occurred here. And I have to share this one with you. There was a woman who was a teacher and she disappeared, let's say 20 years ago. Then let's say fast forward to 15 years ago, her husband dies. Her husband has become a hoarder, never goes out. Um, very sad situation. They never had any children. He passes away. So a friend of mine is assigned to be the administrator of his estate. So they want to go ahead. They want to sell the, the marital house so that, that at least somebody, the you know, money can go to charity or something. So the contractors come in, they're taking apart the walls and they discover the wife's body buried in the wall. The oh husband God. had killed the wife. 15 years earlier, and she was buried in the wall. I mean, this is like, this is a true story. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Truth is, truth is scarier than fiction. It really is. Yes. But (laughs) fiction, fiction is deadlier than true crime. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But wow. Wow. So you're never going to run out of stories then. Never, ever, ever. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Which is good. Yeah. Yeah, so I want to know um, a little bit more about your educational program, the Writers Law School, too. So, but can you tell us about that? Yeah, you know, I found that there was a need uh, whenever I was going to these, con- you know, writers conferences, that people would come up to me and they'd say, "Oh, I know you're an attorney. I have a legal question." A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And this was happening so frequently that I decided that, "Hey, I'm an attorney. Hey, I'm a writer. This is what I'm going to do, especially during the pandemic when I couldn't go out." So I put together a program called the Writers Law School, and it's designed to educate writers and artists about protecting their legal rights. Uh, We discuss things like copyright, trademark, patents, uh, public domain, fair use, publishing contracts, um, licensing your artwork. It's all different types of things that um, questions that have been put to me over the years and questions that really there's no place for a writer to go to get the answers and i you know give them the basics and then i point them in directions uh where they can do their research or they can get other reference materials from places that i cite and you know i'm really excited because it's been very well received i've been speaking to a lot of library groups uh, national international artists organizations and writers organizations and it's really a lot of it's really a lot of fun Um, And I'm hoping that through my wisdom and my ability to communicate these, you know, rather dull legal, you know, uh, legal topics in a fun and interesting way that people are taking things away from it. And I really, I really hope they do. And if I can give one tip, 
Can I give one tip? Oh yeah, please do. Writers should always copyright their work. They should they should register it with a copyright office. Some people say, well, I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to put the little copyright bug on the front. But you know what? That's good. That's step number one. Step number two is spending what's at the $65, yeah. send it into the copyright office, get your little certificate so that should anybody you know, steal your property, which is something you've worked very long and hard on, you'll be able to protect it. So register yes. yourself with the copyright <laughs> office. <laughs> yes, thank you for stressing that because yeah, I think a lot of writers don't really uh, don't realize that. Yeah, they don't think about it because when when you're an artist, you're kind of, you're just thinking about the art and you're not thinking about the other the minute details there. So I think that's great that you offer this up because you know to get it from an actual legal standpoint and not just like I heard it from a friend who heard it from a friend who heard it from a friend is so helpful, especially, you know, when people are first getting into that field and you're not earning an income in the quote unquote normal way that people right. do. And so that's the other thing is trying to protect that. And, you know, if you do get so lucky enough to be able to make a living at it, you know, that, that kind mm -hmm. of stuff too. So no, so that's great. You know, artists have to understand or writers have to understand that they're a business, they're business people, you know, mm -hmm. just because they're not making mittens or they're not making, you know, something on Etsy, they're still making a valuable product and they shouldn't work for free. And also they should protect themselves. And that's what I try to help educate them to, to think about themselves as business people and to take the proper steps to protect themselves. Yeah, which is which is so, so important. So, yeah, yeah. I know we, we have writers and artists of all ilk that listen to this. So yes. So definitely, definitely go check that out. And I'm assuming there's also the link on your website will also go to there too. You can find that information there as well, right? Yes. There's a little tab um, up top. This is Writer's Law School. And I have a blog of, of let's say a dozen uh, basic, you know, items and blogs about copyright, um, the new case legislation, which is the small claims uh, uh, portion of copyright law, right of mm -hmm. privacy. I mean, you can find a lot of, a lot of interesting articles on my website. And then also on my website, there's also a list. I will be speaking and doing presentations of Writers Law School. Some of them are free. So with libraries and things like that. So the links will be on my website and they can go to that, which is jodymelman.com. Awesome. And that will be in the show notes too. So people can Perfect. easily just click on that as well. So thank you so much for, for telling us about that. I think that's an awesome, awesome thing to, to provide for people. Um, so I want to know, can you tell us anything about the next installment for the Queen City Crime Series? Well, I'm writing it. <laughs> and um, I can tell you that uh, Jesse's going to be back. Ebony's going to be back. Uh, we're going to have a new character emerge, another strong woman character who's a little older. So we're going to be looking at a woman who's uh, in her 50s and the, and the issues that she's facing and how it's impacted by a crime. And I can tell you that the crime hits very, very close to home for one of our characters. Mm. Very close to home. <laughs> Interesting. Yes. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I was like, I wonder how much she's going to be able to say. Probably not too much, but thank you for that little teaser there. <laughs> Keep you intrigued and wanting there to, you go. to learn more. Yes. Yeah. And that's going to be coming out, um, I believe, in March, in a year. In a year. 
Yeah, in a year or so. So uh, hopefully people won't have to wait that long. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Well, I just wanted to know, and this is a, a little thing that just kind of popped into my head. Is there anything that you hope readers, I know these are true, these are, you know, crime thrillers and stuff, and people might think they can leave their brain. With that. I mean, th I think you still have to engage with your brain with these, but sometimes people think that. But is there anything you hope that the reader takes away from your novels, like learns or from them? If that makes sense. Well, yeah, I hope that when they walk away from my novels, they've, I believe novels should educate. I know like when I read historical novels, I like, you know, to learn about, um, you know, the Scottish people from Diana Gabaldon and the, the British subjects from Philippa Gregory. And, but I want people to learn about the legal system. So in the first book, they learned about, you know, uh, mental health issues and they learned about criminal procedure. In this book, they're learning about, um, again, about how a crime is prosecuted. Um, they're learning about, as we talked about, sex workers and the, uh, the decriminalization of, of prostitution. Um, I want them to walk away feeling like they've learned something about the legal system. Because again, how else are they going to learn about it if, they, if not through novels? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's what I know, I, and it's what I want to communicate to people. I mean, it's a system that prevents chaos in our society. That's the way to look at it. We have rules, so let's let's learn a little bit about those rules and how they operate. And people yeah. are also going to learn in this book um, about how the um, the the Office of Mental Health operates, and um, for example, there's a Bill of Rights for every single patient who is in a psychiatric center, mm -hmm. which is great. But what happens when that psychiatric patient crosses the line? We're going to learn about that in this book. So I really do pe want people to learn about the, the legal system and how it operates. Yeah, yeah, there's a certain, once again, I don't want to give it away, but there is a certain scene with involving police and, and lineups and stuff and exactly. it's different than what you think it's yes. going to be. It's yeah. dispelling. It's dispelling the images that people have from television and mm -hmm. from tele, you know, and from movies because that's really not accurate. I try to be as accurate as possible, and I hope my readers understand that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. Yeah, because I think you know, learning the truth versus the you know, the, the big um, exaggerated truth. I guess. <laughs> to put it or the hollywood truth i guess hollywood <laughs> truth. right yes. exactly and yeah. if you say it long enough in hollywood it becomes the truth that's the <laughs> <laughs> that's true <laughs> we become immersed in that world too much and exactly. <laughs> you forget <laughs> exactly well it has been so much fun talking with you seriously i learned a lot and i really really enjoyed this novel and I know quite a few people that would enjoy this novel uh, and also check out your podcast as well. Um, and of course, check out the Writers Law School for all of our writers out there that are listening, all the artists out there listening. So thank you so much again. So if you want to just let everybody know if there's anything else you want to promote or and then, of course, where they can find you. Well, I want to thank, first of all, I want to thank you, Erin, for having me. It's been it's been a lot of fun. We've had some good laughs. <laughs> and um, my book. Um, Hooker Avenue will be out shortly, and I'm excited about that. Um, and if people would like to follow me on Facebook, 
or Goodreads or any of the social media, all of those links are on my website, which is www.jodymillman.com. And I'm just looking forward to hearing what people have to say. And my email is also on my website. So if people do have questions and do want to communicate with me, they can do it on my website. They can sign up for my newsletter. And um, I'm just excited. I'm excited that, you know, it's April and my book's going to be out. And (laughs) hooray. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, wonderful. Well, thank you so much again. I really, really enjoyed talking to you. So thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. You too. And this is Erin. You can follow me on Twitter at EAprilBeauty. The E and A and the B are capitalized. Be sure to like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash it's a fandom thing pod. On Twitter at fandom thing pod. No, it's in that one. On Instagram at it's a fandom thing pod. On TikTok at it's a fandom thing pod. You can also go to our website. It's a fandom thing pod.com and uh, follow along there. You can reach out to us. If you'd like to be a potential interview guest, there is a contact us button there, or you can just go ahead and email us at it's a fandom thing pod at gmail.com. So until next time, remember it's a fandom thing, black lives matter and stop Asian hate. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.